Hello, and welcome to another episode of MetaViews, where we talk about technology, politics, and society, really from a big picture perspective, right? A way of trying to understand not only where we are, but where we're going. And so today I'm thrilled to welcome my new friend, Andriana Lagudes, who's joining us from Cyprus, uh, to talk about the politics of the future. Uh, in no small part, uh, Andriana, because we're both futurists, but I suspect that we are both futurists who are unlike almost all the other futurists who are out there, in that for myself, I will confess that for many years, I resisted the title or identity of futurist because I didn't like all the other futurists out there until I realized that I could do it any way I wanted. That, you know, the future is what you make it. So therefore, the futurist is what you make it. And I offer that as a kind of introduction because the first question I wanted to ask you, which we sort of got into when we first met, how did you become a futurist? What caused you to sort of take the title of futurist? And in particular, what attracts you about the future? As mysterious as the future may be. I think, I think the one main thing that forced me into being a futurist is how much sense design thinking makes. So like I've always had a massive drive to be in debates and conversations in academic discourse and talking for hours about philosophy and politics and stuff and figuring out things. But after my design training, I was like, okay, how do we apply all this conversation to real life? Mm -hmm. And how can we see it become? Mm -hmm. So I never really had that friction of not calling myself a futurist because I was never in a pot of futurists. I came from a pot of designers. I had that those couple of years where I didn't call myself a designer, and now I do, but I call myself a social designer with a futurist mindset because you kind of have to envision mm -hmm. the future into what we're strategizing towards right now, where mm -hmm. everything, every single aspect of the interconnectedness of how the world is going is at a critical point. Well, and it, it ties into sort of the other motivation I have for thinking about the future, which is this idea that it is inherently political. And I think you just touched upon it, that we're in this global crisis in which our existing systems have either failed or been challenged. And there's tremendous demand for new systems that are inclusive, that are accessible, that are participatory, that to your point about design thinking, do more than talk about the world we want, actually start implementing it, actually start helping people kind of achieve their dreams, uh, you know, get basic necessities, but also climate catastrophe and climate change, that there's a, a general uncertainty kind of hovering over everybody. I wanted to talk to you today about the politics of the future because I kind of assumed that you would share that sort of viewpoint that the future is inherently political. And I feel you just sort of acknowledge that, but I'm going to ask you to elaborate. Where do you see the intersection of design and politics? 
right? If part of your motivation for, you know, futurism was wanting to take design thinking and, and implement it and, and empower communities, that's what I love the concept of a social designer. Where do you see politics and design kind of intermeshing in your own kind of practice of, of futurism or foresight? Mm. There was the initial decision was made on the on this layer that I'm going to explain now. It was as a designer, do I choose to produce aesthetics for the sake of getting by from today till tomorrow in a lighter way, or do I or do I choose for each and every one of my design choices to have less of a catastrophic impact on the planet. Mm -hmm. Every choice we make is directly linked to sustainability. And this could be from who we email to get a job with, to the type of material that we choose to create a set of trousers with, to everything. Like if you look closely enough onto every single one thing, it's a political choice. Mm -hmm. You know, because the personal is political. Mm -hmm. And then once this was cleared for me that ethics right now in the critical moment in time is more important than aesthetics, then I'm, I've created the, these pathways for me to actually explore the politics that are really important for me. And what I've realized is that in the groups of people who are fighting for a better future, futurists and activists, there's a spiraling perpetuation of anger and depression. And sometimes what really helps with anger and depression is designing politics of the future that are centered in politics of care. So this, this, um, these unbalanced polarizations that we have of the male and the female, the power and the lack of power, the class that owns everything and the class that has nothing is so detrimental to the fabrication of the soul every single day. If you wake up every single day and you feel beaten down by what you have, then obviously someone needs to provide some care for you. And if this isn't provided by governments and institutions, which has not been for so many centuries, so I don't know why we still ask it from them, then it's my job as a social designer to come through and suggest that, you know what? We can do this for ourselves. We don't need their agency. Yes, mm -hmm. they've got big batches, batches of money that they could use for us, but we also have, if I, if I have five pounds now, and then I've got five friends that've got five pounds, and we all invest it to create a bubble of our own economy. That is our power creating something new. So I feel like less power does not mean no power. Mm -hmm. Let's just put it that way. So creating communities is such a detrimental political standpoint for me because we've seen how the internet and the development of social media has come in tapped into our brains, convinced us that we are only for ourselves without, without us even noticing. It's not that we do it consciously, but this is what it does to us. And we forgot that, you know what? I actually could put more of my energy 
into investing in the people that are around me so that I can have a healthy neighborhood. I'm not talking even about a whole town. I'm not talking about a whole country. I'm talking about the 20 people I know. That's that's where my power lies. So, and I think there's a massive thing there too. So let, let, let me just jump on that because you, you, you blew my mind in a bunch of ways there. And, and hopefully I'll be able to circle back to m many of the brilliant things you unpacked. But you ended on something that I really want to get you to elaborate on. And I'll set it up by teasing it out that you alluded to what I call the kind of ideology of technology as narcissism. That, that there is right now this underpinning logic of social media and much of our consumer technology that tells the individual, focus on yourself. You are, you know, it's all about you. But in fact, collective action and community empowerment is is where the the path to not just sustainability, but human meaning and 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 healthy relationships. So, what are some of the tactics you use as a social designer? What are some of the opportunities that you think communities should be pursuing that counters the pervasive narcissism that encourages and rewards collective action that fosters and and encourages you know people to work together right to your point about five pounds each pooling and supporting i'm even thinking like an hour a day like you know people at home an hour today working together like that's wikipedia like it's remarkable how much can be done and yet we're all divided and we're all stuck on our own so I, i'm i'm making no sense but i'll re-articulate it what are some of the methods and tactics you use as a social designer to foster collaboration, to foster the the kind of uh, collective action, collective activity that I agree is is part of the way in which we help people push back against the depression and anger? Mm. I think, well, first of all, as a disclaimer, I want to say that I don't see myself, my personal life, as a different entity to me as a social designer. Mm -hmm. Because social interconnectedness is such a is such a definitive part of human life. I can't separate my career and my practice from the way that I am within mm -hmm. my community. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this isn't a how to become a social I don't designer. think that's a disclaimer though. I, I think that's the opposite of a disclaimer. I think that's the, the secret to your success. That, that the personal is the political is not just a slogan, right? It, it's a way of making sense of our lives. It's, it's a way of understanding and bringing coherence to our lives. So rather than a disclaimer, I think that's excellent context that sort of sets up your perspective as a, as a human being, as well as a social designer. Well, great. That was definitely an epiphany that I'm, I'm embodying that the society comes first, the community comes first, and then my career. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, that my productivity and my toxic relationship to how much I produce every day to make money does not come first. Yeah. People's well-being comes first. But Adriana, uh, let's be honest. It takes a lot of courage to say that, right? Like, you it know. takes daily struggle right. with myself for the first three hours I wake up. It's not, it's not even courage. It's literal existential dread, Jesse. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> um, so I would say that's the first 
statement. Let's call it my manifesto, not a disclaimer, take that back. Um, and then in terms of social media, the active choices. I was lucky enough to be educated by a pluralistic university uh, two years ago called the University of the Underground. And I got exposed to so much literature that I would have never found because, you know, academia is only for people with academic yeah. credentials. Yeah. Um, and I was lucky enough to uh, come upon the work of Tristan Harris and one of his co-workers, I don't remember his name right now, who wrote um, a book, which is a free source called Stand Out of Our Light. Both of them now run the Center for Humane Technology and both of them used to be designers in Silicon Valley app developing um, brands that are massive. We're talking about like names like Google, Snapchat, you know, all of those. And in that book, they break down the way in which since the 80s, market the marketing industry has been trying to invade our attention, yeah. invade into our headspace so that we pay attention to what brands need and invest into those brands rather than our own lives. So after exposing myself to the literature that they so open-handedly produced for the world, I started realizing that I can be intentional with my social media. Mm -hmm. I can go through and unfollow all the accounts that don't give me um, quality in my day. Mm -hmm. You know, so I don't know, girls that are prettier than me, people that are succeeding so much that you don't even know how they got so many followers because you're like, <laughs> you're five years old. How did this yeah. happen? You know, yeah. it's like watching what they do. How does that, how does that help my everyday quality of life? So just being more intentional with that and seeing what kind of knowledge do I circulate within my headspace just by open up, opening up my Instagram. And then I also really, really intensely remember your talk in Not A School last year where you were talking about how intentionally you have to think about what message you're broadcasting towards the world with your own channel. And I was like, okay, this is also important because I have a need to share some parts of my life and I have a couple of choices to make here. Am I broadcasting things that are lies about my life? Am I broadcasting things just to make more money? Or am I broadcasting things to demystify what life looks like once you've reached a certain threshold of, oh, they've made it, which is such a, which is such a phrase that needs so much myth busting. Because what does it even mean they've made it? Because yeah. I got two good jobs. Does that mean that I figured out my identity for my rest of my life? Yeah. Existential threat, threat like yeah, yeah. that's where that all comes down. That never ends. Um, so yeah, I would say intentionality with social media is the first thing. Deleting the apps from my phone on the daily. That's another thing. And all the energy that goes into texting people on Instagram now goes into 
calling people to figure out how their day is going, what type of support they might need, and also making space to say what I need. Because obviously that's not something anyone teaches you to do in life. All they want you to do is get good grades and make tons of money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are the first... Well, and I want to tie back, tie what you just said to something you said earlier, which was about ethics and aesthetics. And I, I thought it was profound to argue, and I think you're spot on, that we're in a, an era in which ethics are more important than aesthetics. And yet, it also strikes me that ethics are an aesthetic. And I mean that both in a substantive way and in a vacuous way. Vacuous in terms of virtue signaling, that... You know, when you were talking about all the people who are more attractive than us or more successful than us. And that is part of the psychology of social media, that it doesn't matter where you are in life. There is someone who makes you feel lesser. Right. And that's part of the trap. And virtue signaling is part of that. Right. Virtue signaling is all the people saying, oh, I'm more ethical than you and I am more sustainable than you. But at the same time, underneath that, there is, I think, a substance. And without going too off track, I have not been posting a lot on social media in the last six months, year. But I did post when I got my vaccinations because I wanted everyone in my network to know that I got my shots, that I believe in the science of vaccination, that this is really an important thing for people to do. And that's where I felt that there was an aesthetic... An, an aesthetic of ethics that I was trying to legitimately perform, not as virtue signaling, but as, to your point, thinking of the greater good and engaging in a larger collective action in which I wanted other, I wanted my voice to be part of the other voices that said, we can do this. It's all for one. Let's get it together. And so I'm curious to have you think a little bit around the overlap between ethics and aesthetics. Because what you were just describing, like part of what I really admire about you, and this is as an outsider, because your point about the three hours of the day where you're just struggling with, oh my God, what do I do? I so identify with that. But at the same time as an outsider, I sort of look at you and I'm like, wow, like you're really bringing a coherence to your life that I could learn from, right? A way of kind of, you know, yeah, what I do to make money, that's last. You know, what I do for my community, that's first. What I do for my health and myself, that also comes first. So I'm curious to get you to elaborate on whether there is an overlap between ethics and aesthetics. Because I hypothesize that in order for people to engage in ethical behavior, they have to enjoy it. They have to feel good. They may even want to look good while they're engaging in that ethical behavior. And I don't think that's bad if it results in better ethical behavior. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that and whether that's subconsciously part of your own practice, given that as a social designer, you are very much radiating and promoting a, an ethical approach to our, our world. Mm, such so much food for thought. Before I answer that though, I really need you to tell me what vir virtue signaling means. I don't sure. know the term. Yeah, so it, it's a phrase used here in North America to kind of criticize uh, uh, what used to be called slacktivism, which was mm -hmm. uh, uh, people who 
perform activism, activism, but don't engage in it, who think that activism is just about, you know, posting on your social media profile, but not actually involved in a community group or community organizing. So it, 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 and, and I'm sort of thinking of the thinking out loud, but it's kind of part of the narcissistic culture. Right. There's the activist who says it's not about me. It's about the cause or the community. And then there's the activist who says, you know, it's about me because these issues are going to get me lots of attention and follows and likes. So I'm going to promote this campaign very vacuously and superficial. That's virtue signaling where it's someone who is so obviously just going through the motions and is only doing it because of the attention and that it receives and it it's there's been a lot of backlash there's a big discussion about it here in north america because i think the people who do the heavy lifting of politics and activism whether party side or whether nonpartisan, they resent the way in which celebrities and influencers kind of show up for a few hours take all the attention from the campaign and then go back to whatever thing they're doing a problematic mm. explanation, uh, biased as I may be, but that's my take of kind of what virtue signaling is. Fair, fair, but that's a whole debate by itself because if you're an activist and all you care about is how much exposure someone is taking on the topic, you're clearly ego-centered too. Agreed, 100%. What they're, what yes. they're doing is exposing a problem to maybe a platform that they've got because maybe they're prettier than you and they have more views on on youtube on instagram and even just saying that headline acts as communication towards a vastness of people that wouldn't be exposed to the problem before i'm i'm not settled on this either i um, i I agree 100%. And and part of the reason why I am seeking out individuals like yourself who are not in North America is North America is so narcissistic it can't see past North America. So it, it's it's remarkable to how insular our politics here uh, uh, throughout the political spectrum and how difficult it is for us to get past it in terms of recognizing that. But it does, to your point, evoke the old adage of, you know, uh, good publicity, bad publicity, it's all publicity, right? Whatever attention comes to the cause helps the cause. But there is this larger notion, to bring it back to my original question, you know, whether there is an overlap between aesthetics and ethics, and whether ethics needs an aesthetic, in order for it to be more widely recognized as the priority for our moment, climate change, poverty, pandemics, you name it. I, I, what I felt you said that was totally profound is we are in an era in which ethics is tied to our existential angst. And so I'm curious, where does aesthetics come into that? Um, so I battled with this for a long time because coming from a background of, I studied fashion design in university and the, the majority of the conversation was on aesthetics. Mm -hmm. And I had an, a burning urge to talk about ethics, but no one from my tutors could actually engage in that expectation that I had. So when I left uni, 
I almost, I almost um, created this polarity between my designer self and my aesthetic self. Because I was like, this isn't going to help anything. I need to learn about all the academic stuff that's going on and all the current affairs because there's so much, so such importance in it. Um, but now, now that I've grown into my designer identity label a little bit more, I, I would say until for the rest of my time, I will advocate for the fact that aesthetics is a common language for some stuff that actual language can, is not able to communicate. So aesthetics are actually shapes and forms that subconsciously imply urgency to the viewer, um, make you feel things that a statement couldn't make you feel. Aesthetics plays a vital role in breaking down really difficult information for you so that you can engage with what's critical rather than be so so estranged from all the politics that are happening because when you hear the word politician or you can think about it's someone's old uncle that you could never identify with but the truth is is that when you consciously start believing that the personal is political then you have to see yourself in the politics yeah. so one of the ways i've found aesthetics as the driving force to engage is the example of what we do at the social club in Cyprus. This is a group of, I would say, yeah, politics of care. We're, we're a collective of different people in Cyprus that don't claim they know everything. We're not academics, it's interdisciplinary. And what we're trying to do is we study politics together, break it down, and try to share this information outwardly in really simple terms so that people don't feel stupid when an academic speaks to them just because a term isn't, isn't engaging to them. A term that's so vital for them to understand the environment that they exist in right now. Um, and this, this is the case for so many different topics that that inform your experience of life. But if you haven't been privileged enough to be in rooms where they tell you, you know what, you have been oppressed because this, 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 and this, then you will never know that's the case mm -hmm. until someone communicates that, that someone becomes the wagon to communicate from academia to real life. So, Aesthetics and design is that vehicle to break down and dismantle this dense information that is just scripture and scripture and texts and reports and articles that no one will ever see because you don't have access to university, um, you know, data and turns it into, yeah, an Instagram post, mm -hmm. uh, a Google Drive that people can go into and look at it. A Facebook post. It doesn't need to be more than that. People engage on Facebook in Cyprus for politics. So I'm like, 
why not just break it down on a Facebook post? And if they want to refer back to it, they can find it on the archive or our page. Why the hell not? Now, I I have to, given contemporary politics, come back to learn more. I have a few questions to ask you about Facebook and Cyprus and politics. But I, mm. I want to touch upon the politics of care first. Because mm. you've used that phrase a couple of times. And it's, in and of itself, very evocative and powerful. So given the theme of today's episode, where I'm, I'm really trying to get you to draw Venn diagrams, uh, where do you see the politics of care and the politics of the future overlapping? Part of it almost sounds as if there's a complete overlap, that you almost would synonymize the two, that the politics of the future is the politics of care. But, but maybe that's not the case. So I'm curious to hear you kind of tease out what you see as the relationship between these two approaches to power and, and communities? So the politics of care is, for me, the politics of the future. Mm -hmm. I'm not here trying to convince anyone who believes the polar opposite of me that politics of care matters. I've had a 29-year experience of life in people imposing their opinion on what I should believe or not. So if people choose to be that way, then I'll continue working on my lane and the people that are ready to talk about politics of care and politics of the future in the means of caring for each other with the ones that want to talk about it. I'm not... Well, so yeah, based, based on your, well, again, uh, failed yeah. attempt at a disclaimer, but but don't worry, we, we can get into sort of what's going on there. It begs the question, where did you learn the phrase, the politics of care from? Um, I didn't learn it. It came up. Mm -hmm. It came up in the way that I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. It came up in the way that I, I interacted with other people that had this burning desire to do something that would change the way that we operate with each other. Mm -hmm. So in, the, in my time at the University of the Underground, we had the brief for the month that we were in New York was to respond to the hypothesis of what happens in post-nation states when we go beyond nations. How, how are we? What, mm -hmm. what is this sci-fi hypothesis? And we were there head to head every single day, fighting and trying to figure out every single political matter from country to country. We were from 20 different countries, our activists and academics and designers and researchers all together trying to figure out how to deal with this. And at the end of the day, the one thing that we realized is that how can we even start talking about generalized solutions when we don't even know how to communicate with each other? How, how absurd is that? I say poverty and you hear something completely else. Yeah. So how many times did we come up, come to a conclusion in a conversation, personal or, or more systemic that our definitions of words are so different because our memory data of life are so different. If I can't give you space to describe to me what your experience of life is, then how can I make sure that I'm being understood with the emotion that I'm trying to bring through? 
So this this started. I, I just, I just have to to stop you there and just acknowledge that was absolutely fucking brilliant. Please continue. <laughs> so thank you. Um, but it keeps on it keeps on being the case in every single group that I find myself in, group that comes together from a space of we need to help the situation. We need to start working actively in being part of the solution rather than perpetuating the problem. And what what happened is that politics of care is a is a term that really solidified for us uh, in the social club. Because what we did is that we wanted to work together, but we didn't want to get each other anxious and stressed about how much work we were going to produce. <laughs> we wanted to get together, but we didn't want to impose our opinion on other people because of the memories that we have. So like even the experience of identifying as Cypriot, Greek Cypriot, or Turkish Cypriot in Cyprus is one of the most triggering conversations you can have, which is loaded with historical and war shame of such a long time, which is passed down generationally. So what happened is that we created a workshop that we tested um, a while ago with a group of artists in Cyprus. And what happened was phenomenal. We went in as a collective of seven facilitators. So coming in with plurality and acceptance that we don't all have the same opinion, but we've made space for everyone to say their point of view. Okay. And then so many people we hadn't met, uh, like uh, 12 people. And the first section of the workshop, of the two-day workshop, was to create this circle of a safe space to say, okay, Jesse, what triggers you in a conversation? What can I do to make sure I don't, I don't compromise your mental health just by words that I might say, which are terrorizing to you? If I say the word, I don't know, Canada, is that, is that a trigger word for you? Do you want to explain to me why? And then I say that like one of the things that I always say is that I can't have people talking over each other. That is complete violation of my mental space. I can't, I don't think is, that's respectful at all. And it triggers me. And when it happens, I want to be able to time out because I don't, I can't, I can't function in my integrity. So that happened and we created a safe space. And then people, we, we made way for us to start talking about our identity with our our identification with our ethnic identity and it got really heated and it kind of got triggering too it took us to the edge but then the next day we came back and we started talking from a space of how it was and how it wasn't a safe space and we regrouped and we respected each other anew and we set a new framework for what we need to have this conversation in a safer way further down the line and that was such a profound experience well and if i'm understanding you correctly the politics of care almost describes a methodology in which you're actively caring for each other as the foundation of then politics 
that if you can create that sort of mutual respect, if you can create that kind of mutual aid almost, that it mm. then allows for conflicts and tensions and issues to be debated and discussed in a substantive way in mm. contrast to what we see here in North America, which is just straight up nonsense, right? Like there is no dialogue. There is no debate. It's just name calling at its best violence is really where it's headed. So the mm. politics of care sort of looks at care as the means, as the method by which you can then engage in politics. Is, is that, am I right in trying to? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because after setting that, those frameworks of how each and every one of us can be cared for in, in a political conversation, which is just by itself, is such an anti-establishment and revolutionary act. Talk about care before you talk about politics. What? So there's the, always someone who dismisses the idea because, you know, logic is always better and stuff. Um, but also... The idea that you can set your own political boundaries is also such a revolutionary act. Being like, you know, I'm willing to talk with you about the way that um, feminism might be an overly saturated term. I will talk to you if you're a sexist and you're willing to have this conversation, but I will not talk to you if you start telling me that you are, if, if you dismiss that women get killed because of the power that men have over them. If you're dismissing that fact, I don't want to talk to you. Well, you know? and, and that's the other, I think, powerful and subtle aspect of what you've described as the politics of care in that there is an inherent negotiation at work. And to your point that because everyone is able to define their own kind of political comfort zone for lack of a better word sorry what was the phrase you used that everyone could define their own political boundaries yeah i like i like that you said comfort zone because this really really mirrors what happens on the polarization on social media threads now where people just identify with their opinion and that's it yeah. so it'd be really interesting within an online community to see how you can set your political boundaries but test them again and again yes. so that yes. you get out of your comfort zone so that you do tamper with your algorithm and listen to some different opinions every once in a while. Well, I'll, I'll admit that I was fantasizing when you were describing that in-person process. I was in my head imagining what it would be like in an online environment. And, and that could be a fascinating yeah. future discussion. But yeah. I, I am, I, I want to sort of tease out something you said when I first asked you where the politics of care came from and you said it emerged. And, mm. and I felt that that was a fantastic frame because the other subtext that you've been describing is against persuasion, right? Like the politics of persuasion is kind of what the 20th century and propaganda was all about. Right. It was this idea that there's this battle of ideas, that the best ideas are going to win, that logic will reign supreme. And all of that has been debunked. Right. All of that has been kind of disproven that, you know, you certainly for myself and a lot of people like me, you try to persuade me of anything and I will resist. 
Like, I've just got this instinct in my brain. You try to sell me something, I ain't buying it. You try to persuade me something, forget about it. But there's fantastic research around emergence that if you allow people to talk amongst themselves, if you provide them with the right knowledge, the right facilitation, they will come to their own conclusions and those own their conclusions will almost always be more ethical than whatever persuasive campaign, whatever propaganda that you're trying to change someone's perspective on. So I do want to get to talking more about the uh, politics in Cyprus and kind of Facebook because that's my own kind of curious angle. But before we get there, I'm curious to have you kind of reflect on persuasion versus emergence. That trying to persuade people is kind of a fool's task, but creating the right conditions for the emergence of ideas that you don't know what they're going to be, but those ideas are going to be better because of the process in which they've emerged rather than a top-down process that tries to control and engineer an outcome. I'm being kind of abstract. The context here for me is vaccination in the pandemic and how do you try to get people on side? But I'm curious as a social designer to get you to riff or elaborate on the tension perhaps that exists between tactics of persuasion and conditions that enable emergence. First thing that comes to my mind is like, how can anyone persuade anyone into anything if that someone is entrusted yeah. by the one that's trying to be persuaded? If we do a poll right now, who are we going to find being trusting of their own government? Mm -hmm. You know, if if all these campaigns and all these forced persuasion tactics to get um, to get persuaded come from governments, why would you go? Being anti-establishment is the norm right now regardless of what background you come from. Yeah, so, regardless of the establishment. Yeah, regardless of, if, if I'm Christian Orthodox, this is what's happening in Cyprus right now. I'm Christian Orthodox and I'm really like religiously Christian Orthodox. I am anti-government right now and anti-vax. That's absurd. That wouldn't even make sense, but makes sense to them. So, you know, it's like, if if the people in power if there's no inspirational people in power actually seeing the purity of what science is trying to do with this pandemic situation that we have now then how how can you trust a one person on top a one ruling group of people that is ever knowing of everything what there's the internet me ai was created because human minds cannot fathom the amount of information who are these people fooling sorry rant over um yeah, but, <laughs> but totally fair in terms of emergence though you know the one thing that i as soon as you were saying the the statement for me to comment i couldn't again i got really static on one point providing people with the emergent space so that they things can come up for them people need to provide this for themselves this is this is where where my my understanding of humankind comes to right now 
again, I've, I've said this before in our talk today, but I cannot expect a governing institution to provide me with what I need. I need to create it so that they can see the model to bring it down. Bureaucracy will always be something that caps human evolution. So if we're here having this conversation, my question would be more like, how can I ask the community I already have what is coming up for them and us building our own system for that rather than expecting others to come through? And then, and then global futurist network-wise, which is us right now, would be how can we as people who understand the interconnectedness we have politically, globally right now, out of Cyprus, out of Canada, how can we come together to create this passing of information to inform each other and create those systems so that we decentralize the power from the cognitive power that people give to institutions and bring it back to what we are needing rather than expecting. Because when you expect something from someone else, you're just giving your power away, aren't you? Now, I, I, I don't want to get too off track because <laughs> I feel that you've just opened up a Pandora's box that I absolutely want to dive into, but I'm going <laughs> to flag it for the future and say, I think we should do a separate session on the politics of care. Because I think the politics of care is absolutely brilliant. And I think what you just described, and I'll use uh, uh, a British political framing for this. You just described a new parliament, right? A, a, a parliament that's community-based, that's structured based on care rather than power, that's focused on providing the community with uh, an emergent capacity to address their needs and solve their problems mm. and so that's literally a parliament right mm. it's literally a place in which you know parlay in which the people could come and talk amongst themselves so allow me to use that to segue to sort of what i was trying to get to in terms of cyprus a preface question you recently moved from london to cyprus we discussed this previously when we met, but I'm curious for you to revisit it. Why, what caused you to do that? And I say this as someone else who moved from a major center. You know, most people historically, they're like, if you're in London, England, that's the center of power. It's the center of money. Why would you go? And yet, by all sounds of it, you made the best choice, a very wise choice. So I'm curious to hear what went into that process. Why would someone relatively young, uh, successful in their career, an innovator, if I don't mind uh, saying so, um, you know, why did you choose to move away from where most people, to your earlier point of everyone's telling you what to do and how to make money, I'm sure most of them be like, yeah, go to London, go waste all your money on a tiny flat the size of a closet. What caused you to go against the grain and decide that your ethical efforts, your political efforts, your professional efforts were really best served in Cyprus? I think indicator number one 
was that I was just so depressed in London. I, I was privileged enough to be born in a beautiful island in my life. And I know what it feels like to wake up to the sun every day and to be half an hour away from nature. And when I say nature, when you talk about nature with someone who was born in London, they don't like for my backyard at home is nature for someone who grew up it, it in goes, London. And I think it goes to your Go earlier reference on the word of poverty, that the word nature means different things to different people. Yeah. And like when in more philosophical terms, I am nature, right? My body, my experience of life is connected to nature. So when I feel so detached from it, I start getting depressed. Okay. Formula number one, London was cement. No nature, great, cool. Um, then obviously it was the it was the financial situation of everything. I couldn't have a a living situation and be a full time creative. I, I couldn't have these two coexist in a way where I and I could enjoy the things that I wanted to enjoy that I consider to be bare minimum for what is success for me in my life, which is a flat for my own or maybe one more person to live with, um, healthy food instead of buying cheap food just to survive, and you know, just a space to be creative, a studio space, which hopefully now I've got enough space to do this in my own home. But this wasn't the definitive reason why. It felt like without realizing it, I had put way too much attention subconsciously to be in the center of the world to start my creative career, which served me well. It really did. I've met people who are in my soul tribe for the rest of time, you know? I've seen examples of me struggling in the same way that I do and trying for the same things that I want to do in my life, which is something I probably wouldn't be able to find. You mean at the crossover of creativity and ethics, I don't think I would be able to find that in Cyprus. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but politically, it just became more and more apparent that I was trying to I was putting so much power into changing my narrative into the colonizer's narrative just to fit in, rather than figuring out my roots first, rather than fabricate a narrative that doesn't serve me. And this became apparent when I was applying for funding for different projects that, you know, my struggles didn't tick a box for councils in the UK. I just didn't take a box of struggle. And I found that so absurd. So the this was a long process that ended up to, fuck this, I'm gonna go back home and I'm gonna go figure out what the politics actually are about in Cyprus, in Turkey, in Syria, in Egypt, in Lebanon, 
to see what my geopolitical proximity says about my roots of oppression, the illusions that I have in the way that I operate as a brown body, rather than just assume that I am, you know, that all I need is just to succeed in a big city. Yeah. Right on. And look, I, I have to be straight with you. There, you have opened so many threads and so many subjects that I want to mine that uh, we really do. We, I, I have to, we have to do this again because I'm having to really pick and choose which topics I go to. I say it this time because as soon as you said the politics of Turkey, I was like, damn, I want to dig into that. And I really want to understand more about the Erdogan regime and the way in which uh, social media and those dynamics are playing out in Turkey. That's something I would I need to learn more and, and hear more uh, from you about. But I do want to learn today a little bit more about what's happening in Cyprus. And while the politics of Cyprus could easily be a multi-hour discussion, uh, what I want to do to, uh, to is twofold. The first is to go back to something you alluded to earlier and to stick with our theme today of, of Venn diagrams and overlap. To ask this question out of nowhere, but it's really not out of nowhere because we've been talking about these issues, hopscotch and, and, and dancing. What impact is Facebook having on the politics in Cyprus? And, you know, those of us uh, not in Cyprus, I would say, have a very superficial understanding of what is, I assume, a very long-term conflict and deep uh, 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 wounds and fault lines that exist in the society. Facebook is obviously relatively new, but it's interesting to see Facebook's impact on national and ethnic politics around the world because it has been very incendiary. And also, Facebook, here in North America, certainly, but this is also true in many other places, dominates local politics. Like where I live, local politics is all Facebook, all the time. And it's remarkable how, like, you know, city hall or town hall means nothing compared to the Facebook group. So I'm curious, without us spending the hours that we could getting into the politics of Cyprus... If you could give us a glimpse as to the impact that Facebook has had on both politics, uh, the uh, Cypriot politics in general, but also local politics in terms of the community that you live in and that you're active in. Mm. Great question. I'm definitely not, my area of expertise is not Cypriot politics. So I'm not claiming, um, you know, academic credentials on the information that I'm about to share. So if anyone watches this that has any doubts, please like feel free to apply your criticism. We're here to learn, right? This is why we're having these conversations. And, and again, I, am, why I, I would also say you don't need any disclaimers because anyone who watches Metabuse, they are going to crit critique and offer that feedback regardless of whether we've given them permission or not. But I would offer that you've already established your authority under the personal is political. And so far, your personal authority is tremendous. So, you know, please, Andriana, allow me to say you need no disclaimers. If anything, it, you know, it, it, it only distracts us from the wisdom and brilliance that you bring to these curveballs that I love throwing at you. Thanks. But also, I think these disclaimers 
are less about the audience of MetaViews and more about the Cypriot audience. Because what you have to handle with here is an almost Arab country. And I say almost because of the geographical position of Cyprus, where men have all power over women, where me saying what I think will be criticized with more scrutiny because I'm not an academic, because I'm just a designer who claims emotions are important, you know? And just because I am, I, I like giving these disclaimers because if they come back at me, I can refer to and say that I never claimed to be this person you're telling me you are. This is the expectation you have of yourself. This isn't me. So this is all the disclaimers what? are really necessary for I'm... me to be able to survive. I think uh, this is my conception until now. I hear you. And I think that's absolutely valid. And if anything, what I would want to offer in uh, moving forward is that part of the responsibility of MetaViews in hosting this discussion is that if anyone does come at you, you know, we got your back. Let us know you are forging, you know, new uh, friendships and alliances internationally that ensure if these bigots do come after you, that we will very much rush to your defense virtually initially, but physically if we had to, you know, th th these are the, the times we live in. But I do acknowledge the risk that often comes with, with saying stuff that is outside of the orthodoxy or mm. saying things that uh, you've a number of times today alluded to the power of the academy, which ironically here in North America does not exist. Right. The academy is so discredited and marginalized here in North America that we don't take what they say seriously at all. But I acknowledge that that's not the case across the pond, as it were, and that it is often uh, difficult for a young woman to to speak her mind without feeling that you're going to be attacked by powerful institutions. And that sucks. But I acknowledge it. But please. Just. Just to say, this is not a disclaimer, this is an actual fact. I'm not even afraid of powerful institutions. It's not powerful men yeah. that take up most of the time. Yeah. That just share their opinion, even on matters that they don't really have an informed um, opinion on. And just distract the whole conversation from its own point. Anyway, but, which is exactly but no, but what that's I'm an important. Now. I think we're mining gold here. I think we're getting into some really interesting subject matter because I'm flagging this as a future topic. I think what we're what you're talking about without being too hyperbolic are the fascists. And, and I think that they, uh, young men online organized and violent is not going away. And it's something that as a society, we need to come to terms with because they are attacking young women. They are attacking racialized communities. They are attacking anyone they perceive as strengthening their movement or giving them a sense of cause and purpose. So I, I put that on the table only because to your point, it is real. And it is something that we need to, to organize and fight against. I apologize, yeah. we're getting off track. Back to the okay. impact of Facebook on Cypriot politics, which, as you noted, is vitriolic and full of angry men who don't like to hear other people say things that they might not agree with. Mm. So there's different topics that could be addressed through Facebook 
And definitely when lockdowns started happening, people's um, depression and despair, that felt really political, but never turned into political action. But the one thing that really, really had a massive impact on me and my active community in Cyprus this year was that there was this one protest that a couple of organizations um, towards like left, left-wing organizations, but in the radical left, not in the parliament left. And this is an important distinction because you know, leftist parties that are in the parliament in Cyprus aren't really standing up to the values that they have. So that's why the radical left is necessary. The people that are breeding these communities of the future that we're talking about today. So what happened is that in one of the third series of lockdowns that they imposed on us in Cyprus, there was a tighter curfew and a lot of other things that we had to do and, you know, fines if we went out and stuff like that. And then another thing that was imposed is that our right to protest was removed. Um, so that that's unconstitutional. If I use the word unconstitutional, right, it's a human right to protest for what you believe is better for you, for your standard of living, or not. So what we did is that we took it to the streets and um, a bunch of these organizations that I'm talking to you about um, that are creating a new future came together, created one umbrella platform and they were like, we are all going together in the streets to protest these strict measures that they're imposing on us, taking advantage of the pandemic to cripple the poor, give more power to police and abuse, abuse, you know, the tests and the, and the scenario of the pandemic to do whatever type of corrupt um, stuff they're fabricating behind, behind cameras. And when that protest happened on the 13th of February, we were like 300 people and there were so many policemen there ready to beat us up, ready in a combative manner to kick some ass because people were asking for the right to protest for what they think is right. Totally in regard for the pandemic. We were all wearing masks, we were all keeping our distances, most of us are, I, I, I don't know if everyone went for a check to know if they were COVID positive or not, but yeah. And what happened is that they attacked and it was a battle. It was the first time where you, would, you could see the government, the Cypriot government attacking its own people, its own kids. We were like an average of like 20 somethings to 30 somethings. And that's where Facebook really did its job. Because the first image that went out was an image of a friend of mine with blood coming out of his forehead, you know? And we don't have war in Cyprus. This was done by policemen, Cypriot policemen. 
So that's when the people behind their screens at home reading posts on Facebook saw that it went too far, saw that the government was attacking their own children for absolutely no reason. They even had a, a massive a massive tank that had a water piston on it that almost blinded a girl for no reason. It was not necessary. And then the week after that, people had felt so much that it mobilized the biggest protest march that has ever happened in my hometown, Nicosia. And that was massive. That was a big, big response to, okay, people are listening and people are going to do what feels right to them. And that people are driven by emotion. You know, politics are great, but people are driven by the personal. And yeah. that's where the personal really came forward. And then as most, um, as most um, social movements, most people weathered away. But what really happened is that all the people that organized and all the people that have these causes close to heart came closer together. And new groups formed and new protests happened. And a new narrative started on Facebook. People who were just saying what they thought was right, what they thought was common sense to them, now are followed by so many more people because they're waiting to see what they're going to say because they don't have access to that from media. Because the media just perpetuates what the government or the church wants them to say, which is absurd. So this is one great example of how Facebook really, really was a platform for social change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what it was. Well, and to your point, disrupted the existing channels of communication, right? Ex disrupted the way in which people are shaping their opinions and shaping their perceptions so that it allowed this relatively small group of young people to kind of pierce through you know, people's perception of what is what, partly because the police were stupid, right? They literally beat up these young people without recognizing the impact that that would have. Just absolute blackout. I swear to you that I have, it, it's so alienating to see how the police in Cyprus act. And now I understand how wars break out between the people and you know the the services the guards that are supposed to care for them this idea that they know better you know they might stop someone in their car because they're speeding and they're imposing this idea on them that you know i know better i have to give you a fine and the person in that car could be anyone a scientist, a doctor, someone who is healing people on a daily basis in a really factual way, but it doesn't matter because the state gives them unprecedented power for absolutely no reason to protect the hierarchy of the state. And that's that. Well, and, you know, allow me to sort of wrap things up by teasing out something you just said in terms of the impact that that protest, that that police riot had, that it changed the narratives, 
that it changed the story. And I think that's where the politics of care strikes me as having a very potent potential for the future because it changes our narratives of the future. It changes the way in which we perceive the future because to your point, you're allowing each person to begin by negotiating what I call their comfort zone or what was the phrase you used? their political boundaries their political boundaries but once they realize that they can negotiate or define their political boundaries then they start questioning all the other political boundaries they start questioning the political structures they start questioning the communication structures so as a big picture kind of taking us out we've talked for an hour we should talk again but we should wrap up and respect the limited attention of our audience yeah. Where would you like to see the future of the politics of care? And you alluded to this earlier in terms of a decentralized kind of social movement of people kind of applying the politics of care in their communities. You know, I'll, I'll offer this so I don't totally throw you into the deep end. I'll offer you sort of two possible questions. What kind of online network or what kind of internet relationships could you see connecting all these different communities engaging in a politics of care? And then how about this as a crazy, and I'm not asking this question because I believe in it. I'm asking this question because the interviewer in me thinks that it's consistent. If some university came and said, Andriana, we've got a bucket load of money we're going to give you a center called the Center for the Politics of Care. And we would like you to really take this methodology and allow for students and researchers to really explore it. What would you do? So that's a two-parter. What role does the internet play in the politics of care? And if you did have an academic carte blanche that allowed you to research and empower students to do all sorts of crazy stuff, what would you do? No pressure. Um, <laughs> I mean, everything I'm going to say now is all a hypothesis because we already stated that emergence is how we work. Yeah. So yeah. all this is just a, it's just an expectation, not the reality. But setting grounds for the future is so important because that means we've got an anchor to go towards. It doesn't mean we're not versatile to shift gear, though, when needed. Uh, because as we said, everything in the world right now is so critical that adapting is the only thing we yes. know we're going to have to do. Um, so to answer the first question, I think the internet, the internet, the most important thing that it does is that it provides a space for communication and connection. And then everything falls under that. So in the same way where with my local groups, I will meet every week or every other week to discuss, I can also do that through the internet and through technology. And I've seen that happen with my, with my communities in London, around the world right now, that I was consistent with them and I was consistent with the other ones on the, on the ground and the same impact happened where we build a common consciousness and we keep on building it because we show up committed to each other. That's the first thing. Um, 
But to be to be frank, I would not want the politics of care to start from social media. I wouldn't want it to start from platforms that have something to gain mm -hmm. from my interaction that that gain that they have to get isn't isn't able to get criticized by me and the community that I will bring forward. Because if I start getting ads about things the algorithm thinks I might want, then straight away, my liberties are being reduced. If me and the community builds an algorithm to help us filter through the internet, that's completely different. That's on our active choices. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say that I'm going to use the second question as a starting point to this, and I'm not going to I'm not going to take too long to answer it because this is me, you know, soundboarding um, a life I would really want to manifest. If a university came and wanted to fund everything, I would have to make sure that they're doing it for the right reasons, because mm -hmm. I don't need university funds mm -hmm. to do this. People care. So I've already got five people that can do a low level of engagement and we could have a full blown working community in five years, in 10 years. I'm, I'm in no rush. All I'm trying to do is survive every day. So I'm not rushing to be someone by the end of the day, right? So as soon as you said it, I was like, nope, no university. If it was for coming from a supervisor that I've studied their work and I'm like, oh, their heart is really in the right place. And I can have a one-to-one -one conversation, a series of one-to-one -one conversations with them to figure out where they're coming from and why they want me to be part of building this outreach program, then maybe there, you know, because it's more of a, it's more like we're starting a company together. I'm not going to become, yeah. um, a co-worker, not a co-worker, a co-owner with someone I don't trust. So I'd much rather go into, into a simulation of this with you that, that it already seems that we're so targeted towards the same direction in the world, even if we're across the world from each other, rather than accepting money that I don't know where that money comes from. And... That's where, again, the only university I could think of that I would accept this from is the University of the Underground because I trust them. They've shown their intentions of why they're doing what they're doing. Um, yeah. But, um, well, yeah. And, and I think that's a fantastic answer that really wraps up what's been a really fascinating discussion. And to bring it full circle... You know, there's been a couple of incidences uh, here in North America, one that's been really famous, one that's less so, that kind of touches upon what you just described. You know, one was Google and how Google fired their chief AI ethicist and the optics of them firing their ethicist because the ethicist was really just trying to raise ethical issues. And yeah. at the University of Toronto, uh, the faculty of law hired an ethicist who one of their major founders forced them to rescind the offer because the person is basically pro-Palestinian. 
And it's then created this whole ethical mess of you hired someone as an ethical position, but then you un like, anyway, it's just, it gets into the optics of ethics and how universities are just swamps when it comes to the unethical kind of a posturing of ethics in behind just corrupt money and the way in which that money tries to influence politics and perception. So I, I need to have you back to continue our conversation. You have uh, opened up so many brilliant ideas that I want to explore and get into further. I think that Same. there is a tremendous opportunity to like m most of the ideas that I've gotten when you were describing this were around the politics of embodiment of how we are human beings because we have bodies and we live in communities and we should be focusing on taking care of our bodies, taking care of our communities and taking care of each other. And you said something super brilliant in this last answer, which was, I don't need to worry about money because I have care. And, mm. and it may not have been those words exactly, but it did strike to me that the inherent profound power of the politics of care is that care is what we need that if we can teach ourselves how to care for each other if we can teach our communities how to care for each other everything else is going to kind of work out and build upon that foundation so again this has been fantastic thank you very much andriana i have learned so much today but i we have to do this again i i'm What's going to happen is your ideas are going to percolate in my head. I'm going to have all these brainstorms around the politics of care. And I'm going to want to ask follow-ups and I'm going to want to know more. And a hundred percent, I want to talk to you about Turkey and Syria and the larger politics of the region, because there is so much going on, whether just in radical politics or just in terms of tyrannies and, and the transformation of the state into a much more violent, a much more openly tyrannical kind of entity that mm. I, I, I think that would be a, a fascinating subject to get into deeper and explore further. Uh, I do need to say a big thanks to Danger Darren, Real Sam Gemini, and Texan Space Agency who have been hanging out with us. And they all also express gratitude to you, Andriana, in terms of the brilliant ideas that you've been sharing. You've been blowing all of our minds. And a big hello to all the folks watching us in the future. And if you happen to be a bigoted man who did not like some of the things we've said today, Go fuck yourself. We really don't care what you have to say. Go find someone else who would like to hear what you have to say. But if you would like to offer constructive criticism or feedback, by all means, post in the comments below. Yell at us on Twitter. Um, Andriana, before we end, is there anything you would like to offer either as final words or uh, where people could learn more about the work you do and the organizations that you think are fantastic? Hmm. Um. Interesting. You just triggered a thought. I've been. I've had to do that link tree link on my Instagram for so long, and this question is like, "Yep, I have to actually do it. I need to <laughs> link people to all the resources that have been great for me." So thanks for that. I'm going to add it to my to-do list. Um. But in terms of just to continue this conversation, um. You can find me on Instagram at andriana.lagudis. That's my username. 
And I'm also on Twitter. And then my my website, if you want to go into more depth on the projects I work on, is just myfullname.com. Um, but other than that, no final words. I don't, I don't believe in beginnings or endings. Everything is an ever-ending loop. Nothing is linear. And the biggest thanks is to you, really, because we ended up in the meta room of a live event, and we both trusted the fact that, you know, we're both pretty fired up about finding a new way to exist in this. And I'm still going to be here you know, watching myself in my existential dread of every single day until this, until, until it leaves me and I'm happy with how I'm leading my life on the daily. But I mean, until then, it just is what it is. And thank you so much for trusting that instinct that we had to start this conversation from somewhere. And yes, we do need to do this again, but we also do need to do it in the other way around, you know? You're the person behind MetaViews, and you like talking about everyone else. But no one, do people really know how your brain works? I'm pretty sure people would like to know. It, it, it's you are very much sticking. You are addressing my secret methodology, which is to always shift attention away from you. And that way you become even more attractive as this mystery <laughs> that people want to learn more of. But I do oh, agree 100%. Sorry. Well, and, and that's where I, I, no, not at all. It, it's a sleight of hand that I am thrilled when people discover. So I would say at any point, anywhere, anytime, ask me questions. I will always answer to you honestly, because you have so blown my mind today with the politics of care that I, I feel that my existential angst has been uh, uh, aided tremendously. And I'll close by agreeing with you that the process is the purpose, right? The, the, the journey is the point. The, the path is why we're here. We uh, bumped into each other quite happily as we our paths uh, coalesce. But I think our paths are, are very much one in the same now because wherever you're going, I'm following. You know, that, that, yeah. So uh, we will do this again soon. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll see you all soon. Bye. Take care.